Sasha Mishandani, Managing Director and Founder of K-Capital and Co-Founder of Mumbai Angels, is joining us today. Uh, K-Capital is a pioneer of early-stage investing in India, focused on tech startups, and has been investing in India for the last 10 years plus, founded in 2012 and based out of Mumbai and Bangalore. Uh, K is a sector agnostic fund that invests in pre-seed to pre-series A stages. It has a portfolio enterprise valuation of $8.52 billion, having invested in over 79 companies with a portfolio mix of B2B and B2C startups, some of which we'll talk about today. Previously, Sasha was at Blue Run Ventures as Managing Director for India. Before joining Blue Run, he was CEO and founder of Immersius Technologies and earlier at Merck Technologies, where he was head of corporate affairs and new business. His investments include Inmobi, HealthCart, 1MG, Mintra, Porter, and Fractal Analytics. Sasha sits on numerous boards uh, in India and beyond, and he was also one of the in- in- instrumental in building up Mumbai Angels. Um, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Band. Thank you again for the invite. Um, really excited about this. And normally I'm not so excited, but I'm genuinely excited about doing this. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we've also had the privilege to kind of talk to you and your team over the last, you know, a year or so plus and, you know, looking forward to kind of continuing those conversations. Uh, we like to start these with kind of the same question to everybody. Um, you know, we'd love to learn more about your background. Where did you grow up and what did you aspire to be when you were younger? Okay, so background, I grew up in Bombay. We now, of course, called Mumbai, my favorite city in the world here all my life. Then in the 80s, went to Kodi International School. That's where I met my Bangladeshi friends that I mentioned. That was uh, probably the best experience of my life, just meeting people from all around the world. I would never have met these folks, right? let alone becoming such good friends with them. I had a Danish roommate, I had a Nepalese roommate, I had a Korean roommate, American. But the whole experience was fabulous. And I made lifelong friends. And you know, anyone who's gone to boarding school knows how it makes you an independent person. So that was a great experience. I went off to the US post that. And then 96, I came back to India. So after a long period, back to India. My dad is um, founder of one of India's largest electronics companies. So they manufacture and sell under the Onida brand in India, which is basically televisions, washing machines, etc. And so I joined his business. My presumption was that, uh, like all my friends who came back to India, that we'll go run those businesses as we own them. And uh, the funny thing is, 2023, I'm still not on the board of directors of this company. So he had different plans. And I think that's at that point, I was like, what the hell is this plan? Because uh, he made me do sales, like accountable sales, like, you know, I'm talking about sales manager, lowest level of the company, then area sales manager. Then at one point, I moved to a small city in India called Mangalore. I'm sure most of you have not even heard of it. It's about 12 hours from Bangalore by bus. By, by flight, it's probably 40 minutes, right? maybe 20 minutes. So I, I lived in Mangalore for two years. I remember going into Mangalore office and the power would go off every 35, 40 minutes. It was that bad, you know. So it was like living in real India. It was unlike living in downtown Bombay, which is, you know, the most expensive part of Bombay versus living in Mangalore. I ran a factory in Noida. Uh, it was a disastrous factory. The culture, it's like a different country, living in North India and living in Bombay. So, you know, going there, living in Delhi, transforming that factory. Was, all this was just fantastic. Uh, eventually, in 2002, my dad and uncle were the co-founders of the company. Well before their time, decided to professionalize the business. And they got in a board of directors, a very eminent bunch of Indians. Um, most of you do not know who they are, but like, for example, the chairman of a company called Mariko Harsh Mariwala, he's a very respectable entrepreneur, 
who've done incredibly well, who joined the board. And my dad said, second generation, which is me and my cousins and brother, you guys go do your own thing or you work your whole life in mid-management and grow up in the company. So none of us wanted to do that. We thought it was best that it remained professional. So we all left. My two younger cousins uh, went off to Wharton Business School. They did their MBAs through five-year MBAs. One went to Goldman Sachs in New York and one went to UBS. Uh, eventually, uh, my cousin came back. He runs Malabar Capital. It's a $1.5 billion hedge fund. And my cousin sister, Ayesha, she's an interesting person. She's a yoga instructor in Miami. She's a diver. And she's also an investor. So even though she's a Wharton MBA, she's very eclectic and has great time in her life. My brother went to Flextronics, the large OEM business, and worked in many departments in Flextronics. I then went and did a startup, uh, which was, um, we did two startups actually in 2001. The first one was in the US, you have this company called Geek Squad. And uh, Geek Squad is a subsidiary of Best Buy, the big retailer. So we spun off a service part of our business and created India's largest service company. It's called Adonis. Today is run independently by a CEO reporting to the board. Uh, it's been a great success for us over the last whatever years that we started this. And the second company that I started, as you said in my bio, was a company called Amosius, which is a BPO business. You, you folks may remember, many of you are too young, but there was that BPO craze. So we jumped on that bandwagon and you know scaled up this business. Lots of learnings, lots of mistakes in this company. I can talk about them at some point. And then we finally sold that in 2006. And then I left my family business uh, for good and I joined uh, Nokia. At that time, some of you may recollect some of the older people that Nokia is probably the best brand in the world, exactly like Apple is today, dominant market share. So I was head of Nokia Ventures for India. We were a billion dollar fund. We eventually changed our brand to Blue Run, as was mentioned in my bio. So we done investments like PayPal, that some of you may have heard of, Waze, you know, the map company, you go to London and US, map company. Coupa, we just sold that for about 8 billion about two months back, and so on and so forth. So it was a very successful fund. And I was just lucky, I was the youngest partner but I was just very, very lucky to be learning from some of the smartest people in the world, mostly between California and India, but a lot of work in China and other parts of the world as well, Israel, etc. So if you look back at my life, there's three buckets, family, business, in operations. Then I became an entrepreneur by actually running operating businesses like I'm as CEO. And then I actually became a professional and I joined a billion dollar venture capital fund and worked there for many, many years. And then from there, I learned best practices how to think of in a structured way to invest versus just ad hoc angel investing that I'd been doing in the past. So why am I on this call today? I had a parallel career, folks. And this parallel career started around 2001. Uh, me and my dad were having a coffee one day and I said, you know, my dad being a self-made entrepreneur, he started his company in the late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, access to capital in those days in India was non-existent. It was impossible. But he still figured it out and built a huge company. But in, 80, in 2001, 20 years after that, the situation in India was almost identical. There was no access to capital. So if you were born to a Tata or Billa, you just became richer. And by then, my dad would also become very wealthy. So I could get richer too because I was just lucky to be born to him, which didn't make any sense. To me, at least, they knew that pretty much all of India was smarter than me. But I was lucky to be born uh, as Guru Mishnah's son. So we said, hey, we've got to do something here. And why can't we help finance uh, other entrepreneurs? I mean, I convinced my dad. So we started that by funding a team from IIM Ahmedabad. As some of you may know, one of India's best universities, MBA. Very bright bunch of people. We did the financing. 
from our UNIDA balance sheet. <coughs> but three months after the financing, the new board came on board. And they said, hey, this team looks good. It's, it looks like a good investment, but your core strategy is electronics. You're a listed company. You cannot invest in software. So we agreed. We tried to convince them, but it didn't. It is not possible to convince them, which I agree with them because it, it was synergistically not making sense. So we bought out the shares in a company called Onmo Capital, which we started from scratch. My, so the LP was my dad, and I was the GP. And so between 2002 and five, I continued to make a few more investments, primarily being this relationship with LP, my father, and GP being me, managing these uh, investments. But by 2005, I was too busy running my operating businesses. And I didn't want to take any obligation to my father and take capital from him. So I, so I said, how do I do this on my own? Uh, I, of course, still had limited money at that point in my life. So me and my best friend, uh, name is Prashant Choksi, we were like, hey, why don't we like join an angel club? Because just make it easier. We can write small checks. And we had great deal flow. So I said, okay, Nijor may have the capital. I have the deal. Let's go to him. So I remember looking around uh, on the web to find something interesting in, uh, to join in Bombay. That time it was still called Bombay. And we were shocked. Well, actually, it was Mumbai by then. And that there was nothing. Uh, we checked the next day on the web, nothing. So that's how we created the Mumbai Angel Network, the two of us, which became India's first angel network in as early as 2006. And uh, so my day job was Nokia writing the big checks. And weekend activities, actually the fun stuff, which was the Mumbai Angel stuff, the early checks. And this continued for many years, till about 2000, I think 2011. In 2011, what happened, folks, is there's a very large asset management firm called Guggenheim. Some of you may have heard of the Guggenheim Museum in, in Los Angeles. But Guggenheim is a $500 billion asset management firm. So the Canadian head of Asia, uh, he was an Indian Canadian, Sadarji. He approached me and said, hey, listen, I heard some good things about you. Why don't you create India's first early stage venture capital fund? And I'm happy to seed you with this. So initially, it sounded interesting, but my job was so good, I didn't want to leave. But after some discussion with my dad over a drink one day, he said, you know, I would do it. I mean, why do you want to work for someone when you need a chance to be an entrepreneur? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, maybe he's right. Let's do it. So I quit my job. And I thought it should be relatively easy to raise a, you know, $10, $15 million fund. That in those days, that was good enough to get going. But I was surprised that after several months, all I had was money from my two bosses, John Malloy and Jonathan Ebinger, who had given me the initial check. But beyond that, zero capital, because the asset class in India to raise money for a fund was non existent. So I said, look, this is bad. I quit my job. But in my mind and heart, I knew that there was a massive opportunity. So there had to be a better way to raise this capital. So I was thinking about it, thinking about it, and I said, okay, why don't we approach Sequoia Capital? As most of you know, Easily one of the best funds in the history of our industry. So I approached them and I said, would you invest in my fund? And they said, of course not, because we're a fund as well. But we can work with you on deals, etc. So I said, yeah, that's fine, but I need you to invest. And this is the reason you should invest. This is my track record. By then, I'd been investing for 10 years. So after maybe several meetings, they said, okay, come pitch to IC. This looks more interesting than we thought. And the IC approved the investment. But post that, this got stuck again because it was a fund to fund. So eventually they flew me to America to meet uh, Michael Moritz. Again, some of you may know, probably the best VC in the last 30 years. So Michael and me had a two-hour meeting in, uh, in his office. And at the end of the meeting, he said, look, I like you. I understand what you're coming from. Let's do this. So once Sequoia came in as an LP into our funds, 
I could go anywhere in the world and have a coffee with anyone I wanted. Pretty much, you know, nothing is you know blanket in life. To cut a long story short, we got oversubscribed to maybe fifty million, but I took only twenty five, and that's how we closed our first fund. We did the second fund in twenty uh, seventeen, and the third fund we closed last year, hundred million dollars. We also have some opportunities funds that uh, we will close shortly. So between all these funds, we now have about two hundred fifty million that we manage for investors. Right around the world, so maybe I'll take a break. That just gives you an initial thought process of what we're doing, and we can get into other questions if you believe, if you think it's correct. Yeah, no, and I, I really like the. I mean, one thing I'm just kind of reflecting on, kind of your journey is, and I think this is true for a lot of um, even members of Ban is, uh, you know, they're second generation. You know, come from entrepreneurial families, studied abroad. Now they're coming back and they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives, whether you know, stay in the business or, or do something else, start ventures, invest, et cetera. So I think that's quite a, that's actually a very inspirational kind of story. And the idea of, you know, being entrepreneurial where you would go to a venture capital fund and say, hey, seed me because, um, you know, then I could help build your deal flow. I think that's also uh, quite inspirational. I just want to ask one, a couple of questions on your just angel investment journey. Um, I know Mincha was kind of a big, uh, you know, win for you. Uh, and obviously that became part of Flipkart, but you know, we'd love to just hear that story of how you became involved with Mintra. Maybe was it through Mumbai Angels? You know, everything was through Mumbai Angels in those days because I got the deal flow and then I passed it to Mumbai Angels. This this deal was only done by me. So I was the only investor, but I put uh, Mumbai Angels under the single Mumbai Angels deal, but there was no other Mumbai Angels investor. So how Mintra happened was I was introduced to Mukesh by... Um, Someone I trusted implicitly. I think he was his classmate at IIT Kanpur. And so I met him. Uh, he came very, very highly referred. And in the first meeting, uh, I could tell this guy is an amazing entrepreneur. I really liked him. And I knew he was clear thinking exactly what I looked for. But there were two parts to it. One was, I didn't like what he was trying to do, which is his initial business model. And he was a single founder. And I said, hey, Mukesh, this can't work, buddy. You know, I don't like both, but I like you a lot. So you've got to fix something here. So he said, okay, let me get back to you. And he disappeared. And uh, six months later, he phoned me back. He said, do you remember me? I said, yeah, I, I only remember awesome entrepreneurs. What do you want to do? He said, let's meet again. I said, okay. And he came with three awesome co-founders that he had convinced to join him. The business remained the same, where I had a bit of a doubt. And I said, okay, let's do this. Uh, and I did it. We made the investment. Uh, as we invested, we then roped in Tiger Global uh, into the investment uh, in the Series A round. 10 million bucks from Lee Fixel, who became a good friend of mine over the years. And then what we decided was that, look, what he was trying to do uh, in those days was he was trying to do, uh, there was a US company called Cafe Press. So he was trying to sell cups and mugs and those kind of things. So basically a glorified, uh, he was not even a tech company. And we said, look, this is not going to work. It's not going to scale. So what Lee did, very interesting story. He gave him two tickets. He said, Sasha, won't give him two tickets. One to Beijing for one day in the morning and come back in the evening. And one to somewhere in, in Brazil, uh, again, one day trip to two Tiger Global portfolio companies that did online apparel. And he said, look, go and see them. And then you come and tell me if you think it makes sense. So he went off on his way and he came back and he said, my God, I'm in the wrong business. I need to be in online apparel to India. And that's how he pivoted to online apparel. The rest is history. Uh, people don't realize that uh, when we funded the company, it was a million dollar valuation. And when... Walmart bought uh, Flipkart for about 17 billion, which is public news. Out of the 17 billion enterprise value of Flipkart, Mintra was 6 billion. 
So basically, we created six billion enterprise value in exactly ten years, maybe nine years, and that's why Mitra is one of the most successful investments in Indian tech history right now. And it's all about, you know, awesome entrepreneur, awesome co-founding team, but critically also the right market, which is going after very large time versus the original plan, which was very very niche. And they all added together to build an amazing company. So, so you backed the jockey first rather than the horse, and I think the, then the horse was kind of um, arranged uh, afterwards. But no, that's quite amazing <laughs> uh, that story. And I, I still remember, you know, when I was starting out, Ban and I visited the Mumbai Angels office, and obviously Mincho was kind of like the big, you know, uh, deal that was kind of kind of on the board. Uh, that's quite interesting. Um, and then, you know, going to KC now. Um, it says you're looking at pre-seed to pre-series A. Is that still kind of the focus? And and so and you know when you look at and screen companies, you know what what things are you looking for? How much of that is quantified versus more qualitative? You know, yes, the answer is yes because that's where we feel this is the biggest opportunity for that delta to write that first one to three million bucks. So earlier we do five hundred k, now we do two million up to three because the markets evolved. You know, become deeper. Uh, seed has become bigger. Everyone knows this. I don't need to repeat myself. And therefore, we write two million checks as a minimum nowadays uh, in most of the companies, at least. Uh, you know, it's it's evolves almost every weekend that it's evolving. And what I mean by that is, we are constantly trying to see what else can we look for in a company before we decide to invest in it. And the learnings are constant. It's unbelievable. That's what keeps this business so exciting, interesting, frustrating. But also gets keeps the edge is what else can we look for to find the next big entrepreneur, the next big big company, and so it's a bit of both, uh, folks. It's a little bit of the softer elements and the and the harder. The obvious ones I won't repeat: large market, awesome entrepreneurs, blah blah blah. Everyone on this call knows that. But it's a lot of the softer elements that make a big difference. For example, traits like how conscientious is the person, how determined is the person you know, and so on and so forth. And several such traits we look for when we interview the entrepreneur and do the back channels on him or her. And we see that some of these things are more important and we spend a lot more time than what we do as far as the main business. And to your earlier comment about jockey and, you know, and so on and so forth, I feel that time is also now getting more and more important because, you know, you're talking about timing, but you don't want to invest in a company and then wait for seven years for it to scale because our funds are 10 plus two at best. And we don't have the luxury of time to wait for, you know, four, five, six years for the timing to come or the market to evolve into that. So therefore, if we have some idea of how big the time is and how quickly we can get to a larger time, that makes life much easier versus waiting too long for them. And for example, in my first company, we waited for more than 15 years to get to a certain scale where you could talk about now becoming a large public business where we don't have the luxury in a fund environment. Makes sense. But then, you know, how do you manage your pipeline? You know, how many companies would you talk to in a, you know, how many decks would you see? How many companies would you talk to in a year? How many of them would actually go to DD, due diligence, and then IC, et cetera? So, you know, we see so many companies and the whole point is to say no quickly. The success is you can say no quickly and we time that nobody, no entrepreneur should be talking to us more than a certain amount of time. So every Monday we are reviewing that. Uh, data very intricately saying, hey, hold on, how many companies be on a certain timeline? And then that partner or anyone responsible on the team that is leading that deal has to explain why the deal is beyond a certain time frame. Because entrepreneurs like quick responses. Even if it's a no, a clear no, and why no, 
and so they can move on versus dragging them along for weeks and weeks and then saying hey not sure come back to us that's the worst behavior so we try to keep that tight and efficient and the best way to do that folks is what we call a prepared mind now as you can imagine in countries like bangladesh and india there's opportunity galore you know every category every space there's something that can be looked at because the growth opportunity in our countries being relatively poor countries is still humongous so we got to just pick our spots and say okay we are prepared with a prepared mind for say category x so that partner he or she then knows that you know they are proactively looking for opportunities versus the opportunity coming to them and if it does come to them they can take a quick decision on whether they want to even do dd or not so we are moving in that direction versus in the past looking at pretty much everything and then spending cycles on these companies it's not sustainable and as the market gets more competitive it makes sense to do less which is actually more uh, more relevant where we say okay we're picking these spots for this period of time and we're going to be the best at this and that's how we are actually evolving as a firm so that's quite interesting. so you have kind of you developed that kind of point of view and and about gaps in the market what sort of business models could work and then you're kind of on the hunt for that do you ever end up then you know even seeding things at the idea stage or even getting into venture building yeah yeah of course so that's exactly right so like for example i won't go into specific examples but in this new fund of ours we've actually done a few of them which were literally concept stage we did a saas company last year which was two uber engineers but my partner gorov had got a thesis on the space uh, and then he actually looked out for these opportunities and he didn't find anything but when they reached out to him through another you know well regarded person immediately he knew that this is what he wanted to do so the whole dd was more about him spending time with the founders understanding their vision for the business it was only a vision not even a laptop plan and the rest of the history we give him a million bucks and now we just raise money from sequoia it's still extremely early it only has 10 customers it's been one and a half years but ideas yes we can come in as early as concept if you really like the founders and we have obviously a prepared mind for what they're trying to do mm. How, how do you think about portfolio returns as well? Uh, you know, are you look going after? Uh, you know, does each you know opportunity have to be a hundred x kind of outcome, or you know, do you look for ten x, five x as well? You know, this business, ladies and gentlemen, it's power law business. So whatever we do, and how many years of experience we have, you're only going to have one or two very large businesses in any one portfolio. But you don't know which that company is going to be on day one, obviously, and therefore every company we do. we have to think that this is going to be a massive outcome for us and therefore each time we do a fund we say okay at least this much of the fund should come from this company from any company to make it worth our time so for example this fund is a 100 million fund we want to make 30 to 50 million minimum in any company uh, otherwise it's a disaster and a complete waste of our time over 10 years on the portfolio value creation side you know how much of your time is spent on you know managing the portfolio versus Let's say the investing side, and and what what are, how do you systematize that? You know, there are three buckets. Uh, there are certain companies, unfortunately, we have to take a tough call that they're not going to make it. So what we then do is, in the past, we'd spend a lot of time with them, and because it's a human nature, you want to help the weak child, and therefore we spend a lot of time. Now, what we started doing a couple of years back is saying, "Hey guys, we continue to believe in you, but this is going to be a tough ride. So no more board meetings, no more reviews." you feel free to reach out to us whenever you want and i actually think that responsibility i let it go from the board members hands and let that individual entrepreneur be in touch with me directly and i do calls and meetings with them on the weekends when i'm happy to do for years 
but we knock those out of the way so that we don't focus on them. The bigger companies really now need us only for very specific activities. Hey, get us a CFO, come join us for a strategy, strategy meeting, open a door and get me into Bangladesh. So I'll call up Fair Soban or whatever, and he'll open a door for Beximco or whatever in Bangladesh and so on and so forth. So it's that middle ground, the middle companies that look promising that can become the next network or the next porter that we spend most of our time on. And that's really, that time that we spend has become critical on how we pick, the, which companies to pick versus trying to do a little bit for everyone. And I, I read that, you know, 79 investments so far, 14 exits. How did most of them come about? Was it through secondaries or, yeah, did any of them go IPO or buyouts? You know, in the past, exits were damn difficult in India, super difficult. I had to take five, six trips a year to the U.S., go meet Twitter, Facebook, Google, you know, the usual suspects, and to try and convince them to buy our assets. And these were minuscule, tiny deals, 15 million, 27 million we sold a company to Twitter, Facebook, 15 million. So you can imagine getting the attention of someone relevant in these companies, and then trying to convince them to buy an Indian asset, and then for such small amounts of money, which is a complete waste of time for everyone. But we still had to do it, because there was, M&A was non-existent in India, or very minimal. Primary markets, public markets, no question of loss-making companies. So who's going to buy this? Indian companies are not buying it. All that has changed dramatically in the last five years, or maybe three, four years. You've got large Indian companies like Geo, Slash Reliance, Mahindra, buying assets. You've got startups now writing billion-dollar checks, like Baiju sort of billion-dollar checks for Akash yeah, and bought a company. And most importantly, the public markets have opened up. As everyone knows, in 2021, they finally opened up. Yeah, they were at the top of the market and they were irrationally priced. So everything has come down. But that's part of an immature system that obviously evolves over time. Entrepreneurs have already gotten smarter. So the next cycle you'll see when they list, they'll be at least on a path to profitability profitability, or already profitable. Therefore, you start seeing some really valuable companies like, for example, Jetwork, which is on the screen right now. Touchwood, when they list, you will see that they're going to be a very profitable business. And therefore, hopefully the market cap is commiserate with that versus just some market cap on the on the pretext of future growth. Those days are obviously over. So net-net, the situation is much better. We also have a lot of um, selling to larger, uh, let's say, private equity funds. So like we do secondaries. So for example, in Zetwork, we sold a small piece to larger private equity funds. We can get an exit that way as well. And to your question, we've also done IPOs. We've done two or three IPOs already. We did one of India's largest IPOs last year, in 2021, I'm sorry, with Nazara Games. So that was a great IPO. Uh, company's doing really well. It's India's largest gaming company. We did a company uh, in the US, uh, CRM business. It's about $2 billion IPO right now. We had merged our company. There were three mergers into finally doing the NASDAQ listing. So we've done both NASDAQ, we've done India. We have two more IPOs lined up. Uh, with no sight of when it will happen because of the markets. But my presumption is this year probably will go without any IPO. It'll probably be 2024 when we do the next set of IPOs. So a bit of everything. Yeah. And just kind of deeper dive on some of those um, companies you mentioned or from your portfolio. So that work was quite interesting because it, it's, I mean, you, maybe, you know, you can explain it better, but it seemed to be like that they're manufacturing and shipping parts for capital machinery and they've got clients kind of all over the world, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, you know, Zetwork is very interesting because when they started, they didn't look like a typical tech company. Uh, and, you know, they had manufacturing. And, you know, when you use the word manufacturing, you don't, it doesn't match with uh, tech VC writing a check. 
But because of my background in manufacturing and electronics, uh, I could understand what they were trying to bring. Of course, I was skeptical when they first came. I said, my God, this vision sounds insane. But the more I thought about it, I said, my God, if they can actually do what they're saying they'll do, this can become a very, very valuable business. And you know, at the end of the day, what is our business model? Our business model is going after hard problems. And if you throw awesome entrepreneurs at hard problems and it works, that becomes the moat. And that becomes, you, you create incredible value. So if that fails, that's fine because the whole point of it is to really create disproportionate value. If you go after simple problems, there'll be 10 other people copying you. Versus in a much harder business model, you need awesome entrepreneurs. And therefore, I said, let's do this. And touch with the rest of the history. You also mentioned these kind of strategic buyers now, and and one of your portfolio did get bought by I guess Tata. It's now you know one MG, and I'm I'm curious, you know, in what I've seen so far in kind of online pharmacies in Bangladesh is they suffer from very low margins, high cost of inventory and distribution. They also struggle to convert online offline customers to online. I mean, a myriad of challenges in in, in this space. LTV as well, and the long tail of customer monetization. How did these guys figure it out? No, they haven't figured it out yet. It's a tough one. We are still shareholders, by the way. So mm-hmm. when Tara came in, half the private equity guys were split between should we stay or not. So they sold and we stayed on. Uh, and we've actually got 3x since the time that Tara came in in the last round mm-hmm. when we became a unicorn. But it's not an easy business. As you mentioned, all the points you mentioned are accurate. Uh, we are working on how we can, let's say, build this more responsibly and not get into like an e-com type war, like if you remember what happened to Snapdeal and Flipkart and Amazon and the amount of money that was gone away. So I would say that they've done, among the e-pharmacy companies, without a doubt, one of the better jobs of tightening their business together. Uh, is they still losing money? The answer is yes. Uh, would it become profitable before they go IPO? They'll have to, otherwise they won't be able to go IPO. So I'd say I am cautiously optimistic that in the next two years, this, this uh, PNL should look very different. And it's I can see progress in, in a very concerted way. We've knocked out, uh, say, unnecessary parts of the business or CapEx heavy parts of the business, etc. There's certain parts of the business that we still have to spend money on and we will continue doing that. Others will be left behind. So I think the next 24 months will be critical for this business. But I'm, like I said, I'm cautiously optimistic. But mm. a lot of the points you mentioned are still relevant mm. as far as all the burden is concerned. Another interesting company was Wisa, or if I'm saying it right, because Wiser. obviously Wiser, yeah, hard to monetize B2C mental health. Seems like they went the B2B route, and particularly even, you know, providing, uh, you know, through like NHS, getting into markets like the UK. Yeah, so great pivot because first of all, they did a great job with B2C because their brand became so, you know, let's say it's it probably the first company we've done which is made in India which developed a global brand. BBC covered them, Forbes, Google gave them an award. So they had great traction. But as you rightly said, uh, the monetization was uh, abysmal. Profitability was obviously non-existent. Uh, CACs were terrible. Everything was a mess. But they were still growing. And to the credit of the entrepreneurs, they realized that this is not sustainable early in the life cycle because they got to get carried away considering how much global acclaim they got, the awards and so on and so forth. And realized that where the opportunity really lay was in the B2B component of it. And I kept pushing hard. Saying, I would recommend, I would recommend, I pick one. That's one learning, folks, is you cannot do B2B and B2C. At least I don't believe you can, especially in the early days of building a business, let alone later on. You've got to pick. And so we picked B2B and we you know, cut down B2C substantially post that. I think that was the best decision the company made 
and post that it's been in much much better shape and growing very healthily right now another interesting company was 1k they seem to be taking this oyo model but for kirana shops i would love to hear more about them again uh, i'd say it's a bit of a mixed bag uh, the positive side is that they have become uh, one of the leading if not the leading um, you know kirana store type format companies in india right now having said that i think they grew too fast last year and therefore the unit economics were a little bit bumpy uh, to put it mildly so they are in the process of actually correcting that like a lot of other tech companies and uh, i'm pretty confident in fact very confident that they'll do it so i believe that this year will go in a consolidation for them and post that then go and raise a large amount of capital but it's a damn tough space folks it's very tough uh, to get the unit economics right you've got most of the companies have failed and disappeared in this category so we see back ones and then you've got the big daddy geo that's been hovering around trying to get in, in in every part of the country right now but we believe that this team has the background the, the ambition and the ability to pull this off but i think that whole point of just growing at hyper hyper speed i think we went from 400 stores to 1500 stores and we realized the unit economics were just not anywhere close to where we wanted them to be so we've now cut down the point being folks is better to have a smaller business but much better run obviously the parts of getting bigger again but what we see is going to see now is make it smaller but show me that this unit economics are working and therefore i'm be happy to give you more money but don't give me a big business with crappy unit economics i won't even give you a cup, cup of coffee that loan capital so that's this is going to be a very interesting phase for these guys over the next 6 to 9 months mm. so optimizing that that footprint literally and i guess in the case of somebody like 1k just show me that this this model is working right i don't need to see 1500 to see that is working Yeah. The last one was Porter, so platform between say logistics users or customers and logistics providers like two-wheelers, trucks, etc. Um yeah, just thinking about dealing with disintermediation, also ensuring sufficient supply side utilization so they they stay on the platform. How how do they figure it out? This is a good example. They were both they were doing you know in 2015. This is a hot company. uh both intra and uh, intercity were hot spaces they were doing both just like wise house in bbb to see and they were in the process of going and raising a 40 or 50 million round from hong kong some investors and the market crashed so we had a board meeting and i remember that board meeting where i think it was uh, department of sequoia and i was there and there was another vc in the room and we said the world's changed you got to do something dramatic now and he is like no no but you know i i need all this money i need to do this and we said look buddy you know we're getting any money so we fought back pretty hard that day and i was a bit disheartened saying it is going to be tough because this company is sucking so much cash and and he needed xyz in his mind to grow versus us we realized that he didn't need any way close to that but at the end of the day that's be the entrepreneur coming to that realization now why is he such a great entrepreneur instead of pondering on this and sitting on it for weeks and months or maybe not even listening to us within 14 hours he made up his mind that he agreed with us not because he was smarter than him but it just made sense and he cut his cost base down dramatically he cut his intercity business to zero and he started building this business out he built it with small change literally lakhs rupees here and there till he raised another round of about 8 10 million from a strategic investor so all he had was a few hundred thousand maybe a few million at best then he had the 10 million round from a strategic investor and then last year when he closed 100 million the business has been in incredible shape and now we are a dominant number one player in india 
and I feel we should do an IPO in about two years and be worth a couple of billion uh, as we speak. Uh, I, I was in New York City, Tiger Global, which is, as you know, retrenched from India or anywhere in the world for that matter, was happy to give us more money at a higher valuation in this company, in this market. That was a proof point of how well they've done. Mm. But more importantly, gone through that journey of actually, you know, burning money, building out, acquiring X amounts of cash, and then realizing, hey, we don't need that much cash. We need to build a solid business. So we have maybe four years of cash right now in the balance sheet. That's and, amazing. And, uh, it's done very well. And then we launched bikes, as you can see. And we're thinking of now looking at uh, some global markets, but, you know, calmly, not just because we just want to grow globally just for the sake of it. But if we find markets that are relevant to what we're trying to do in India, then we'll slowly build out a multinational firm here as well. That's amazing. Uh, and he definitely did the the hard yards, uh, it, it seems. Um, just, you know, then going into your new fund, you know, is the, the vision and the strategy kind of still the same? And I know there's a bit of a cross-border element here as well, because I know you guys are also exploring Bangladesh. Yeah, I think the vision remains the same. Uh, not think it does remain the same. But, you know, what has made us successful in the past has been going to open markets, right? What I mean by openness, when I started investing in 2001, there was no one investing, right? And you win in life when there's no one there. It's a blue ocean. So for that, for example, that first investment I talked about, you know, which I did for my family balance sheet and I did it personally. Uh, again, that was an example of too early, but we held on to the asset because it was privately owned by me. And the good news is last year it became India's first unicorn last year, where TPG, the US private equity fund gave us 400 million valuing the business 1.6 billion. It's a company called Fractal Analytics. Right. Hopefully, it should be a multi-billion IPO next year if things go well. Uh, and then again, 2006, Mumbai Angels first to come in, 2011K Capital. So now we're like, hold on. We're still very relevant and doing very well in India because we built the brand and we do what we have to. But how can we also go to interesting markets where there's less competition and we can play a part and help the ecosystem? And therefore, we're looking at newish markets and one of them being Bangladesh. And we've been pleasantly surprised by the quality of people and entrepreneurs in Bangladesh. As you know, we were very close to writing a check into one company, but we couldn't because at the last moment, we checked with one of our portfolio companies that we thought maybe has a conflict. And unfortunately, they did, or at least they perceived it to be. And you know, you know, in this business, once you fund an entrepreneur, he or she becomes your partner. And we just couldn't, you know justify going against their thought process and therefore we had to back out of that deal. So we are quite keen and we want to continue looking. Have we looked as aggressively as we want to? No. And therefore I'm very happy to do this webinar because I think we need to now kickstart this whole activity in a much more structured manner. And hopefully we can do even one great deal from Dhaka in the next 12 months. I'll be delighted. But when I say Dhaka, I mean anywhere in Bangladesh, it doesn't matter, right? And, and curious about that entry point, right? I mean, you mentioned that specific example where maybe you had a portfolio company kind of doing something similar and maybe they saw expansion into Bangladesh or they were already expanding into Bangladesh. I mean, it, you know, could it be, would it be virgin investments? Would it be also, you know, you know encouraging your portfolio to enter into Bangladesh? Uh, you, you know, what, what is the ideal kind of entry point to kind of begin that process? No, no, no. It'd be virgin investments. This company was nothing but Bangladesh. It was Bangladesh entrepreneurs in Bangladesh, but it was a global SaaS business. Our company is also a global business, and they thought they'll, they'll actually go head-to-head -head at some point in that vertical. Uh, as far as coming to Bangladesh, of course we want to come into the Bangladesh market. But the reality is that, like India, Bangladesh is still a smallish market. 
So our focus is primarily on bigger markets in the US uh, and so on and so forth. And then after that, there's multiple markets. So we're not that excited about Bangladesh to come into Bangladesh market for Indian companies. Not because you don't like Bangladesh, but it's just the smallest market. But entrepreneurs in Bangladesh who want to scale out. And of course, within Bangladesh, if it makes sense of the times big enough for consumer businesses, we'd be happy to have a look as well. And maybe you can build a business not just in Bangladesh, but in the region and get to a certain scale. And mm. if we believe that's possible, then it becomes interesting again. Mm. Uh, another just question I also wanted to ask about, you know, what are the advantages, but also, let's say, disadvantages of kind of managing bigger funds, um, including, I guess, managing those portfolio outcomes? You know, the biggest mistake I believe fund managers make is get their funds bigger and bigger. And uh, what happens then is that returns commissured go down. The simple math, anyone good at math in this call will agree with me. And therefore, I've been very careful about the size of our funds. Our first one was 25 million, then 50, this is 100. Uh, if if you ask me, I would have been happy with 70 or 80 million. It's more than enough. Because our goal is not to return two times capital, right? You want to do four times, five times, six times capital. And it's easier said than done when you do a two or 300 million fund, let alone a 500 million fund to do four or 5x capital. You do the math on that, you have to generate several billion dollars of overall value, which is, trust me, easier said than done, especially in India, which is still a growing market. So that's where the challenge is. I'm sorry, I forgot the rest of the question. Can you remind me? Oh, advantages and disadvantages. So you kind of talked about the potential downsides of growing too large of a fund. So that, that makes sense. Um, then, you know, maybe I'll just kind of end with, uh, obviously India is almost kind of arguably in like generation four uh, of the technology kind of scene and, you know, investing landscape. Just curious, what sort where, you know, what areas are you excited about? Where will like the next generation of entrepreneurs come from, at least in the Indian market? You know, this, this thing moves like a wave. It moves so fast that what I say now is irrelevant in a few months, right? So we are like constantly looking at interesting spaces. I've learned one thing. Don't get too sucked up in waves because what happens to the wave is there's five other people with you on the wave, right? You would have been before the wave. So we're looking at like, for example, when we did mental health, we looked at it before it became interesting for everyone else. If it was interesting, then there's six other funds lined up. Why K? Yeah, why not K? Not bad. K, whatever. Why not so and so fund? But then by the, someone pays a little bit more and say, okay, I'll take their money instead. Versus us coming in and, you know, saying we believe in this now before anyone else does, before it becomes a hot category is what we are paid for. So we are talking to entrepreneurs that we believe no, most people are not even speaking to right now that hopefully will become interesting in a year or two. Like I said at the beginning, we're going to be careful about timing so we can't go too early. But that's how we try and marry the two together. And, and that's where you said having that prepared mind makes, makes all the difference. Yeah. yeah. So like generative AI, all these things you're obviously looking at like everybody else, right? But then within that, what else can we look at which is a bit different? So we, we, we call them the edge deals, the scratch your head deals. So every Monday, I ask my partners, first, let's talk about your scratch your head deal. Because in any portfolio, yeah, ideally, you should have at least five, six, you know, scratch your head kind of transaction where your LPs say, hey, how the hell do you do Z work? Like, what are you thinking? And that's what we are paid to do. It's not yet another SaaS company. Obviously, we'll do the SaaS company. We love them. Obviously, we'll do the consumer company. We love them. We, we talked about so many of them. But we want to do scratch your head as well, which is what is where the 100x comes from. And it's still the riskiest because most of them die anyway. But that's where you really get the delta. Awesome. Uh, Sasha, 
thank you so much for for taking the time. You know, we really enjoy kind of you know learning from you and your team, and hopefully we can continue doing that. Uh, and hopefully we can you know make some reasons for for you to visit Dhaka uh, later this year, uh, sooner than later. So hopefully we can continue no, the conversation I, I, in person. I, I, 